This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. The people you're serving and helping, they probably know what they need, and it may not be, it may not be what you're giving them. This is a podcast about two things, helping those with urgent needs in front of us today and improving the roads so others can walk it safely in the future. Welcome to The Better Samaritan, a podcast where we're learning how to do good better. I'm Kent Tannen, co-director of the Humanitarian Disaster Institute at Wheaton College. I'm joined by my colleague, Laura Finch. Unfortunately, Jamie Aiton cannot be with us today, Um, but we continue these conversations exploring how we can more effectively love our neighbors from everyday acts of kindness navigating the most complex humanitarian challenges facing the church and society today. And today we're joined by someone who has a great perspective on this, Rich Stearns, who is President Emeritus of World Vision U.S. and the author of The Whole in Our Gospel and the new book, Lead Like It Matters to God. He's also a recipient of our Humanitarian Disaster Institute Leadership Award. Rich, we're so glad that you're with us. Hey, thanks, Kent. Great to be with you and to see you again, at least virtually. Yes, indeed. Really good to be with you again. So, Rich, uh, you have great leadership experience, and you've read, I'm sure, lots of leadership books. Can you tell us why you're compelled to write a leadership book and how this book is going to be different for us? Yeah, Kent. Well, you know, most people read leadership books because they want to be more successful. They want to get promotions. They want to get a higher salary. They want to, you know, climb the corporate ladder if they're in a corporation or even in a nonprofit, they want uh, more responsibility and 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 more money and more promotion. So, uh, this is a, a contrarian leadership book in that it's not about how to be more successful. Uh, in fact, right in the introduction, I say, you know, success can be an idol in our lives, and um, success is overrated, and that God is much more concerned about a leader's character than a leader's accomplishments. And that God is not going to be impressed by the title on your business card or the size of your bank account. And what inspired this story was, uh, uh, what inspired my book was the story about Mother Teresa that I heard. Uh, Many years ago, Senator Mark Hatfield visited her in Calcutta. And when he saw the size of the problem of human suffering and poverty in Calcutta, and then the size of Mother Teresa, at four foot nine inches with a little uh, ministry in the middle of this ocean of poverty, he said something like this, Mother Teresa, don't you feel like a failure because you can't possibly deal with all the poverty that surrounds you. And it's uh, arguably worse today than when you started. And Mother Teresa's answer really revolutionized the idea of what success should be for a Christian. She said, my dear Senator, God did not call me to be successful. He called me to be faithful, faithful, not successful, faithful, not successful. And so uh, this is a book for Christian leaders that talks about what does it mean to be a faithful leader as a Christian? And it comes down to character, that our character is our witness and that what God is most concerned about is not the results that we achieve, but the values that we display uh, as we represent him in our workplace uh, to the other people that are entrusted to our leadership. Mm, that's that's great. I love that story and really sets us off on the on the right path. And appreciate that you have have had this experience, like corporate experience as well as nonprofit and 
and to bring that to bear on what's most important for us. Uh, I wanted to, this should just be quick, but I wanted to, for listeners, quickly list the 17 values you do. Just run through just the words themselves. And then because we have, I think a lot of our listeners and the people we work with at Wheaton College here in our master's program are either young in age, just at an undergraduate going into humanitarian work, or they're pivoting in some way into this work. And so I'll read them. And then my question for you is, of these 17, it's hard to develop all 17 at the same time. Which several would you advise someone new in a career that's either humanitarian or they're in business and they really want to have an impact uh, for God and for justice? Where should they start to focus? So I'll read the 17 and then you can pick from this great list that you uh, that you wrote. So okay. for, for readers... These are 17 values that uh, that Rich addresses in the book. It's a surrender, sacrifice, trust, excellence, love, humility, integrity, vision, courage, generosity, or, and greedlessness, forgiveness, self-awareness, balance, humor, encouragement, perseverance, and listening. That's a great list. I, I'm, I, I've encouraged in all these myself. Um, what would you recommend as someone starting in a career, especially wanting to have a humanitarian or justice focus, where are the places to concentrate on early? So the first two values you read are the first two uh, that I address in the book, and they're surrender and sacrifice. And when I was writing the book, my wife said, are you sure you want to start a leadership book with chapters on surrender and sacrifice? You know, is anybody going to read chapter three after that? Because again, it's kind of a contrarian book. You know, when you think of leadership and, and success, you don't think of surrender and sacrifice, right? You, you think of opportunity and income and, and those kinds of things, more power, more influence. So I, I guess I would list surrender as, as really the, the most important thing, because if you don't understand as a young Christian that God wants all of your life surrendered to him, not just part of your life or parts of your life. Uh, God is not interested in compartmentalization, and we're very good at compartmentalizing our lives. Uh, Lord, I um, I turn my life over to you with the exception of my career, or with the exception of my love life, or with the exception of my finances. Um, and God is not interested in someone that's not fully surrendered. So I think the, the starting place for Christian leadership is to understand that you've surrendered everything to the Lord, and, and your posture should be, Lord, how do you want me to serve? Uh, where do you want me to serve? Um, you know, when I became a Christian, I, I prayed the prayer, Lord, I'll go where you send me to go. I'll do what you call me to, to do. I'll be what you call me to be. I've surrendered. You know, I've surrendered my life uh, to you. And that surrender led me on quite the career journey uh, over the years as, uh, you know, I tried to take my cues from the Lord. So I think Surrender is for, and when you surrender your career, it's kind of a freeing. It, it, you know, it's no longer, you know, if you have a problem in your career, you can say, Lord, your career for me is having some problems right now. You know, <laughs> I, I can remember when I was a CEO of Lennox, we had company cars, the, the executives. And when the car broke down, I, I'd say to the guy at Lennox, look, your car broke down and you need to fix your car so I can continue to drive it. And so, that was a that was a very freeing thing because we used to worry about well you know how much is this car going to cost to repair and all of this so but when it's somebody else's car you know it's like all right the lord it, it, it's your career you know that i just lost my job or you know that i just had this problem at work but i'm surrendered to you and and i'm available so surrender that was a long answer to that i think uh 
Integrity, I would list next. Uh, I don't think, I mean, if you're a Christian and you don't have integrity in your life and, and, and you're not a man or woman of your word, you're not trustworthy, um, integrity is like the North Star for leaders. Because I think I can say safely that no one in earshot right now wants to work for a person that has no integrity or has questionable integrity. We all want a boss that is trustworthy, honest, that we can trust them to do the right thing um, and to take you know, people into consideration and to, uh, to make wise decisions with integrity. And then uh, uh, let me give you a third one. I guess I would pick um, humility because Again, humility is kind of a funny value to put in a leadership book. You think of courage and, you know, boldness and, you know, perseverance and, you know, think words like that. Uh, but you don't think of humility. You don't think of surrender very often when you, when you think of leaders. But humility is so important because it basically says it's not all about me, right? As a leader, frankly, as a Christian leader, what your leadership should be all about is the people that you're leading. You know, it's all about them. And how can I help them to realize their God-given potential and their hopes and dreams? Because I'm more like a coach uh, as a leader than I am the star player, right? And a coach wants to bring the best out of his or her players. And and so I, I think uh, leadership requires humility. Rick Warren once said, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. So it doesn't mean you have to deny your giftedness. If you, you might be a phenomenal leader with brilliant ideas and creativity, you don't have to deny that. That's a God-given gift. You just have to uh, understand that God gave you that uh, to be used uh, as you shepherd others. Um, you know, Rich, that is such a good word, especially for recent graduates that are that are about to go out into the world, these mm-hmm. pandemic graduates, because so often I think we find, and I even found myself like, you know, we, we have the vision, we feel like we're called and then we get out there and this is not at all what I thought I was called to. And what does that mean? Am I on the right track? I'm not really sure. Uh, So what else do you wish that you had known at the beginning of your career? Well, you know, first of all, what I often say to younger people is that a career is a very long time. And, you know, I, my youngest daughter, um, uh, she had five jobs with five different organizations in the first six years of her working life. Wow! And in each case, you know, it was not her dream job. It was not her ideal job. And so she kept changing to try to find a job that she liked better, more suited to her, you know, skill sets and all of that. Now, interestingly, I had five jobs with five organizations over 44 years. Uh, Right. uh, That's a generational difference, right? And probably, you know, our parents, uh, you know, people of my parents' generation often had one job for 40 years. And um, Mm -hmm. uh, so it's a different world today. But what I would say to younger people is don't worry. I mean, if what you're doing right now is not your perfect job or your ideal job, or you have some inklings about wanting to move from, you know, the secular world to the ministry world, you've got a long time uh, to do those things and to see those things unfold in your life. So I kind of say, take the job you've got, do the best you can uh, in your job, be a person of character in your current job. 
use that job as a learning experience to discover things about yourself. What are you really good at? What are you not very good at? What do you love to do? And what do you hate to do? Because all of those things will help you find the next job that is more aligned with your gifts and talents. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, at all times we should be have an open ear to the Lord, you know, to say, Lord, you know, I want you to direct my steps. And so I'm available. I'm open. I'm available. Um, when you make that commitment that I'm available, um, some scary things can happen. I mean, I made that commitment. And then at the height of my career in corporate America, the Lord sent me an invitation to join World Vision uh, to take a 75% cut in pay with five little kids, uh, to move my family from Pennsylvania to Seattle, Washington, where the sun don't shine and the Mariners never win. And, uh, you know, it, but that's kind of the adventure we have with the Lord. Uh, when you make yourself available, um, very often, uh, you know, he'll, he'll put you in the game in a different way and he'll open doors for you that, um, that you might be surprised to see opened. Um, right. So that's just some advice for younger people. Yeah, let's talk more about that transition because how did you know it was time to take all that fabulous private sector experience to World Vision, to the nonprofit world? You know, it, it, it's always hard to really know for sure what God's will for your life is, you know, and, and usually he doesn't appear in a blinding light or a burning bush, you know, to tell you in very, in real specific terms. So it's, it's, it's a process of being available and open and surrendered to the Lord and listening and prayerful and, you know, all of the things that go into um, trying to discern your way forward uh, career wise or in life. And, and so, you know, I just think you have to be open to that when, when it happened to me, you know, one of the things I say in the book is that I've been fired twice from jobs, which surprises people sometimes because I was the CEO of two companies and then uh, the CEO of World Vision for 20 years. And people think, oh, this guy was born with a silver spoon in his mouth and everything he touched turned to gold. Well, yeah, I got fired twice, once when I was 35. Um, and, and then I got fired again about a year later. So twice in one year, which, you know, is a pretty good record. Um, and, and so, you know, but God used those times in my life to really uh, kind of recalibrate me and my faith and, and and to show me. It was like their coach taking a player out of the game who maybe had a bad attitude and sitting me on the bench and saying, wow. look, you know, before you go back in the game, we got to get a few things straight about who's in charge here, you know, and wow. why are you doing what you're doing? And, and uh, you know, because I was compartmentalizing my career from my faith earlier in my life. And God was saying, that's not, I'm not interested in partial surrender. You know, I'm, I want all of you in. And so it was during that wilderness time for me that I made that commitment. All right, Lord, truly not my will, but thy will. I, I will be obedient. I will never go to work again without, you know, uh, knowing that I'm doing it on your behalf. And when I went, finally went back to work at Lenox, China, which was after these two uh, uh, firings, I started every day at Lenox with a prayer, Lord, I am not here to sell more China and dishes. I am here to serve you and to be a witness to the people uh, around me. How can I serve you in this place today? And I started every day with that prayer. How can I serve you in this place today? Because if you're, if you're working in a secular environment, um, 
we need Christians in secular environments. We need people in corporate America that are saying, I'm here to serve the Lord in this place. Uh, and I'm going to be uh, fully Christian in my workplace. Now, that doesn't mean sharing the gospel with everybody at every cubicle. It just means living out your Christian faith in public where people can see that you're a person of integrity and you're a person of compassion and you know, you're a person of humility. And uh, that's what it means to be an ambassador for Christ. As you, as you just shared that first, this, that's a great answer and I love it. And also what flashed to mind is we were having dinner. This is not apropos anything else in the interview, but when we had dinner three or four years ago, and I remember the person with us, uh, was really into Bitcoin and cryptocurrency there. And I didn't quite understand it, but I was thinking in retrospect, we probably should have both, I don't, maybe you did, but both of us should have, uh, should have put a hundred dollars in there and see what would have happened with it. Uh, um, Thinking of those discouraging times, you know, when you um, talk about getting fired twice, what you learn from it. One of the things I loved in your book was a chapter on encouragement, um, which can get lost, I think, at any time in career, early in career with ambition, middle career, having more power, getting used to it, end of career, you know, different anxieties come in. So I loved your chapter on encouragement as a value. Can you talk about that and why that's important for leaders? Yeah, you know, encouragement, uh, I learned over a period of years that encouragement can almost be kind of a superpower for a leader because who doesn't like to be encouraged, right? I mean, when when the boss comes by your cubicle and says, hey, that report you did, that was phenomenal. That was fantastic. Keep up the good work. I mean, you're sky high for a month after, you know, an encounter like that. And you'll work for that boss um, tirelessly because... Uh, he or she is letting you know that uh, he's affirming your work and, and, you, and your, your abilities. And he's recognizing, she's recognizing your God-given gifts and talents. And so a little bit of encouragement goes a long way. Uh, you know, we tend to, it's kind of how do you look at the people around you? Do you look at them all as glasses half full? You know, are they all just half full? And, mm-hmm. and so you're going to dwell on the part that's half empty. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Kent, the problem with you is that, you know, you're not creative enough or, you know, you're, uh, you're not working hard enough mm-hmm. or, you know, you're not speaking enough in meetings. You know, instead of saying the problem with you, Kent, is this, uh, the leader that says, hey, here's what, what I love about you, Kent, mm-hmm. is the way you, you know, process comments in meetings. And usually when you speak in a meeting, uh, everybody listens because you're, 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 your comments are so thoughtful and, uh, you know, those are the comments that inspire workers to work harder. Now, there's a time for criticism, right? Mm-hmm. There's a time, uh, maybe at a performance review, to say, uh, hey, here's some things you can work on. You know, I, 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 I use a little, not so much a story, but a little parable in my, my book about two, two runners on a track relay team. And <clears throat> so the, the relay team runs the relay, and, and the guy on the last leg of the relay kind of bungles the handoff, right? So coach number one says, you know, we lost that race because you screwed up the handoff. You know, I mean, if you don't get your act together, you know, you're not going to be on this team and we're never going to get to the state championship. That's coach number one. Coach number two says, that was one of the best legs I've ever seen you run. If you can work a little bit on that handoff, we could win the state championship. Mm -hmm. Now, which coach do you want to run for? You know, which coach do you want to run for? The, The encouragement coach 
or the one that just came down on you like a hammer and just pointed out your your weakness and your flaw, which you knew anyways, you knew you bungled the handle handoff. Uh, so, you know, I think encouragement just really motivates people. It creates loyalty, uh, people that will go that extra mile because the, the leader respects them. Mm-hmm. And, and just one other comment. You know, if you look at the people you work with as people made in the image of God that are uniquely gifted and talented mm-hmm. by their creator, um, that gives you a whole new perspective on your coworkers, right? Because they're not just, you know, lumps of flesh sitting in cubicles. They're people made in the image of God. And when you work with them in a positive way, it's like you're drawing water from a divine well. A divine well of giftedness that God has placed around you, and so that's a, a great way to think about the people uh, under your leadership. I love that, and even in nonprofit work, sometimes as in the corporate world, it, people can become the means to the ends. But I, I like that about your book and character right. and encouragement here. Like the the people, the way we treat people around us, our bosses, the people who work on our teams, the people we're leading. Um, it's about character and, and it's not means to an end ever, uh, people creating God's image. You know, and you know, you know, Kent, that you know about World Vision's work with the poor, but one of the things that defines our work with the poor is that we don't see them as deficient. You know, we see them, um, you take a poor rural community in, you know, Northern Mali, you know, and what do you see when you look at that community? You can see a bunch of people that are hapless and helpless and, you know, can't seem to get their act together. You can look at them that way, or you can look at them and say, each of these people are made in God's image and they are just as creative, just as entrepreneurial, uh, just as hardworking as anybody I know in the United States. They just haven't had the opportunities to release their giftedness. And so when you look at a poor community that way, you're a little bit like an orchestra conductor that knows that there's beautiful music in these people. And all I have to do is bring it out of them, right? So that's a way of looking at the poor that says they are amazing. What they're capable of is incredible. And my job is to help bring that out like a conductor brings the music out of an orchestra. And, uh, and once they start playing and they start hearing their own music and they start seeing uh, how they can be successful in their, in their community and solving their own problems, then uh, the magic starts to happen uh, in communities that have been trapped in poverty for decades. How does, sticking with that and the theme, you know, this podcast is called The Better Samaritan, um, where we're thinking about helping the person who's robbed by the side of the road, but also addressing systemic issues. How do we make, as Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said, make the road safer uh, for those who would travel? How do you think that through? You thought it through at an enormous scale. Uh, all of us think it, have to think it through individually on a really personal scale. But how do you think through both organizationally and on a personal level? You know, how do we help someone who's hungry now? There's so much, you know, hunger that you addressed in World Vision mm-hmm. um, with limited resources, but also, you know, how do we invest in peacemaking or infrastructure? These things that are long term, which means sometimes you have less resources to address immediate needs. Mm-hmm. How do you think through these kind of immediate and structural uh, changes that have to happen so that people can flourish? Yeah, I like you. You're asking me easy questions like that. Um, you know, one of my pet peeves, uh, is about churches and ministries, 
uh, that put band-aids on poverty, right? So what's a band-aid look like? If, if, if a community is hungry and you give them food, you've put a band-aid on the problem because you haven't, you haven't asked why they're hungry. If a community is poor and uh, people can't earn enough money to support themselves and you, you give them things, you give them money or you give them resources, uh, you, you, again, you've put a Band-Aid on the problem. Why are they poor? Why do they have no economic opportunity? Um, so World Vision always tried to keep asking the question, why? Why are they that way? Why is this the case? Why, uh, why can't they achieve X, Y, or Z? And when you ask the why question enough times, you start to get to the underlying causes of poverty. Um, and yet so many organizations with global reputations uh, will, will treat symptoms and not underlying causes uh, of, the, of the problems of poverty and you know, all the you know, problems we see in the developing world. <clears throat> so why do they do that? Because it's easy to put on a Band-Aid, right? It, it's pretty easy to give food to a hungry child because it makes you feel good. It solves the immediate problem until tomorrow, right? Uh, and then tomorrow the child's hungry again. In fact, we all know that that little uh, proverb, if you give a man a fish, he'll eat for a day, right? And if you teach a man a fish uh, to fish, he'll eat for a lifetime. I like to paraphrase it like this. If you give a man a fish, he'll eat for a day and he'll come back tomorrow for another fish. If you give him another fish on day two, on day three, he'll bring a couple of friends uh, and you give them all a free fish on the third day. And on the fourth day, guess who shows up? at the World Vision office, the fishermen show up because they've learned there's free fish here. Why work? You know, why, why go fishing all day and uh, do the hard work of, of, of catching the fish? And so um, we have to, again, bring out the, the giftedness in, in the communities uh, where people are poor and help show them that they can do this, that they can, uh, they can organize themselves. They can, uh, improve their education. They can tackle these problems in their own community. And I think the best organizations come alongside communities and help and encourage them uh, to do this. They provide some of the training, some of the inputs, but ultimately, and you know this about World Vision, uh, after about 10 or 15 years, we leave that community. We tell them right at the beginning, we're not going to be here forever. We don't want to create a dependency. And uh, about Two years before we're going to leave, we have an exit plan, and then we hand them the keys and say, you know what, you can drive now. And at that stage in the community, there are savings groups, there are water committees, there's an education committee, there's there's a mother's nutrition group, you know, that cares for newborns and, and measures their nutritional status. And all of these little civil society groups have been started up, and they're all being led by the people in the community and all of a sudden, there's a community with hope for the future and pep in their step and, and, and a newfound belief in their own abilities to tackle these issues. You know, I, um, I sponsored a child and, and got a letter at one point that World Vision was moving out of their community. And I was so shocked until someone explained that to me that, you know, they've, they're done, you know, they've done They've done their work there, and now it's time for yeah. the people of that village to carry it forward. And I love that. And that's like um, a celebration. Like, how would you feel if your yeah. kid never graduated from high school? They never, ever graduated. Right. They're 38 years old, and they're still in high school. You know, it's like, right. no, you want them to graduate. You want them to, yeah. uh, you know, to launch, you know, into the next part of their life. Mm-hmm. 
Um, Kent, did you have anything else you wanted to ask before we move into the big five? No, I th- well, we can talk for hours, but I think uh, I think it's a good time. I know, to, <laughs> it's a good time to move into the big five here. I think for for the time limits. So, uh, Rich, now we like to ask five big questions that are too big to answer quickly, but that's what we ask you to do. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, these questions are something we ask everybody. And it's just a way for people to get these different perspectives on, you know, how we keep engaging to to become better Samaritans. You know, we uh, use mm-hmm. that phrase, explain the systematic reason we use better Samaritan, but also because each of us were part of this podcast. We want to keep seeking to be better Samaritans ourselves as our, you know, uh, I think all of us should be. So first question in these yeah. is, uh, what's something that has surprised you in your work recently? You know, um, I hate to kind of start off with a negative, but when I came to World Vision, you know, I, I came in 1998 after 23 years in the corporate world. Um, and so for the first time, I'm in a Christian nonprofit, uh, my first exposure really to global poverty. And uh, I think what I was most surprised about uh, was how most Americans are not very concerned about global poverty issues. You know, 15,000 children die every day. I think that's the number today uh, that the UN projects. 15,000 children die every day of preventable causes. And if I were the coroner and I had to fill out their death certificates and I had to put the cause of death, I would write the word apathy down as cause of death. Because we have the money, we have the knowledge, we have the resources, we have the ability to go and be good Samaritans, right? We're in the we're in the same moral position as the priest and the Levite. We see the problem, we're aware of the problem, we have solutions to the problem. We could help, but we choose not to. Uh, and I say we, I mean the the many many people that do choose to look the other way and, and not stop and help the person broken down at the side of the road. So. Um, you know, Americans are very charitable people, but as I think you know, Kent and Laura, about 95% of our charitable giving goes to help people in the United States. And there's nothing wrong with helping our neighbors here in the United States, but 95% of the charitable giving of the wealthiest people in the world, the wealthiest nation in the world, stays within our borders to help our people. And we only give 5% to every cause in the rest of the world. Um, and I just think we can do better. And uh, so I was just surprised at uh, how little Americans were giving to help internationally. So our second question, how have you been learning to do good better personally in this work? Well, I'll use my World Vision reference frame here. Um, World Vision has been a learning laboratory for now 70 years. So And every year, the goal is to constantly improve approaches, techniques, uh, again, to address the root causes of poverty. And we went from a model of handouts in the 1950s when World Vision started. The idea of development was, you know, in its infancy. And so what you did is if children were hungry, you gave them food. If children were orphans, you built them an orphanage. Um, and, And so what evolution happened over the years is that we learned uh, from experience that um, the poverty wasn't going away with the handouts we were giving. And uh, so we kept asking the question, why that I mentioned earlier, you know, why are these uh, people poor and why, uh, why don't they have these opportunities? And it eventually led to a model that 
got us to the root causes of poverty. And so we started to develop expertise in each one of those things. So in 1990, for example, World Vision didn't do much microfinance at all, you know, lending to the poor. Um, since then, uh, we have a massive microfinance institution. I think we loan out about a billion dollars in loan capital every year to more than a million clients. I think since its inception, we've given out something like 17 billion in loans to the poor so they could start their own businesses. But if you went back 30 or 40 years, we didn't have that capability at all. World Vision has now become the number one provider of clean water in the world. And um, again, if you went back 30 years, we were we didn't know much about providing clean water, but but you learn that the absence of clean water and sanitation is one of the root causes of poverty. I mean, if you don't have water uh, available that's safe to drink and wash and bathe in, and you don't have a toilet, uh, how are you going to start the next Apple computer <laughs> in your village? You know, I mean, you these basic things people have to have to live. And so one of the things that holds people back in, in extremely poor communities is the lack of clean water. So so World Vision had to become a jack of all trades um, because poverty is not one dimensional. And I know it's very popular for charities to just do one thing, you know, build houses or drill wells or feed the hungry. And yet those one things don't solve the problem, you know. And, and so I think it's really important for every nonprofit to be a learning organization that listens uh, to the people they're serving, right? Because the people you're serving and helping, they know, they probably know what they need. Mm -hmm. And it may not be, it may not be what you're giving them. Um, but they're going to be very polite and say, you know, if, if you want to give me this, well, we're going to be polite and we'll say yes and we'll take it. But I wish you would listen to us and hear what we really need. Because what we really need, we don't know how to get it. And if you could help us do that, that would be a big thing. It's a good bridge into the next question. How do you define humility in the context of helping others? And humility is one of the characters. Well, I, I've, I've kind of already addressed this a little bit, but. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. Because humility is one of the values. I was just going to point out humility is one of the values that you talked about in the book. Yeah. And and I, I think humility is really needed um, as we go, especially cross-culturally, to work with the poor. Um too often, I think Americans or Europeans will have a tendency to look down on the poor and take a paternalistic attitude of superiority, like uh, I'm not like them and they're not like me. And boy, they don't seem to really have much on the ball. And, and uh, you see, humility is about understanding that the people you're serving who are poor are just as capable as you are. They're just as intelligent. They're, they're just as creative. They're just as hardworking. They just haven't had the opportunities. Um, and again, it's about treating poor people as equal partners and seeing them as people made in the image of God. You know, a little personal anecdote. In 1999, I sent my 16-year-old son to Ghana for a summer to ride around with the World Vision well drilling uh, crews. <clears throat> and when he was over there, when he came home, he says, Dad, these people you know, these people can't seem to get anything done. They don't understand this or they don't understand that. You know, they don't. Uh, and he was very frustrated, you know, like he'd be, even go to a restaurant to buy pizza and it would take them a long time to enter the transaction and do all of this kind of thing. And, and I said, and he had just been accepted at Cornell University for the following year. 
And, and I said, Andy, if you had been born in rural Ghana, you'd be herding goats right now. And if that young boy in rural Ghana had been born where you are, he'd be going off to Cornell in the fall. And I said, they are every bit as capable as you are. They just haven't had the opportunities that you've had. And I'm proud to say that my my now 39-year-old son, Andy, is a, a major donor to World Vision. <laughs> he's, he's a bank vice president and a major donor to World Vision. That's great. Um, what's one thing you think could make the road safer? Yeah, so this made me think of the problem that humanitarian organizations are facing today, and that's the problem of fragile states and rogue uh, regimes. And um, the world is a dangerous place, right? It's a dangerous place uh, to be in countries like Congo and Yemen and Syria and Myanmar. And it's a long list. And I think if you look at the fragile states indexed, and for, you know, for li- listeners that don't know what a fragile state is, it's essentially a country that is has got a broken government, an incompetent government, or a corrupt government, maybe a totalitarian, often it's a totalitarian government. And these are the countries in which it's the most dangerous countries in the world to be a child or the most dangerous country in the world to be a woman. Um, they're rife with human rights abuses. They're not, um, you know, they, they these are countries that uh, the rule of law is broken in many cases. And so People can commit crimes with impunity and people can, you know, oppress the poor with impunity. And about 50% of the most extreme poverty in the world today is in these fragile states that represent about 20% of the world's population, but 50% of the world's poverty. And so, uh, unfortunately, those contexts are not easily fixed, right? You, you know, teaching farmers how to farm better doesn't fix the context in which they live. Um, and it's the work of diplomacy. Uh, it's the work of uh, nations uh, where nations like the United States can bring pressure to bear on some of these other nations uh, to uphold human rights and uphold the human rights conventions of the United Nations. And so so some of that work has to be done at pretty high levels by, uh, uh, by government-to-government interaction. And last question, how do you sustain hope in the midst of your work, especially are there specific practices that have helped you to, helped you to sustain hope? Yeah. And as you know, oftentimes people that do humanitarian work uh, for year after year after year, especially those who are out uh, right in the middle of it, you know, they're, they're seeing human suffering every single day uh, and they're seeing problems that are hard to solve every single day. And they're, they're seeing child deaths and, uh, women raped and, you know, the kinds of things that happen uh, in vulnerable populations, um, it can, it, you can, you can get a form of PTSD, you know, because you're exposed to so much human suffering. And so, you know, what always helped me, and again, I didn't live in the middle of it, but I visited pretty often is, uh, you know, I mentioned this concept of seeing the glass as half full or half empty. And when you do this kind of work, you're, you're always, lamenting the people you couldn't help, right? I I couldn't help everybody. I couldn't save every child. I can't go to every village. Um, I can't fix hunger for every person on the planet. And and so if you live in that negative space, that glass half empty space, it just, you, you go into a downward spiral emotionally. 
But if you live in the positive half glass, glass half full space, you learn to celebrate the, 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 the victories that you win. You, you celebrate the child that makes it through childhood, gets through high school and, 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 and actually goes off to college. You celebrate the village that now has clean water and sanitation in their village. You celebrate the community where the women have risen into leadership positions and they're doing all kinds of things to improve their community and, or the entrepreneur that got a $200 micro loan and is now employing 15 people uh, in a sewing business uh, that's uh, selling school uniforms to the government. You know, you, you celebrate those things. So I, I would say celebrating the victories and not dwelling on the failures uh, too, too, too long. Rich, thanks for a great conversation. I always love getting to talk with you, and thanks for a great conversation. Thanks for this new book. I uh, encourage everyone to check out Lead Like It Matters to God, Values-Driven Leadership in a Success-Driven World. Anything, Any other ways that people could connect with you to learn more? I think you're on social media. I think I've seen see you on Twitter sometimes, right? Any other ways that people can connect with you in addition to the new book? Yeah, I'm mostly on Twitter, um, but at, at Rich Stearns. And uh, I've also just launched a podcast uh, nice. where I interview Christian leaders. And so wherever you get your podcast, you just type in lead like it matters to God. And, you know, I've interviewed people like Gary Haugen and, uh, you know, Ron Blue and Nicole Massey Martin and, you know, some leaders that you've heard about. The governor of Tennessee uh, did an interview with me. And they're all interviews about Christian leaders and what leadership is all about. Well, Rich, thanks for your leadership and service and uh, the way you keep inspiring us to seek to do good better. Great being with you. All right. Thanks, Kent. Thanks, Laura. Well, thank you for joining us for this conversation uh, with Rich Stearns. He has such a unique perspective having worked with World Vision. I think I saw in a bio that he's traveled over 3 million miles in that role and appreciate his uh, encouraging us how to grow as leaders. Uh, what's most important and think about values and what matters to God and also think about how we can be more effective in loving and serving our neighbors, especially those who are suffering, uh, thinking long-term, thinking in the way that we're trying to explore in this podcast of, of how to do good better and make a difference for the long-term. Hey guys, are you on our email newsletter list? It is a great way to stay on top of all the latest episodes we have some amazing guests coming up later this year that you will not want to miss. Check out the show notes and subscribe from there for all kinds of exclusive content, including a jobs board. Thanks so much for joining. Keep learning to do good better.